Well, good morning. As TJ mentioned, my name is Light Shin, and uh, I, I am a PCA uh, teaching elder, so uh, you can trust what I say in the pulpit. <laughs> uh, but I'm also an army chaplain, and all that means is that PCA and other denominations across the, uh, across the churches, um, basically they allow part, portion of their ministers to be assigned in the military context. So that when the soldiers, sailors, and airmen do deploy and out of context or they're unable to exercise their free um, freedom of worship, uh, then the chaplains are available to provide that right to our service members. So I've been doing that since 2008, uh, and it's, it's been an, um, my absolute pleasure of serving God in that part of the kingdom. And it's also been great because we get to come to places like Hampton and I meet you all and worship together with you. And I just have to say, my family and I are extremely, extremely grateful for, for the warm welcome and the inclusion that, uh, that you all have provided for our family since we've been here. And we could not have been more grateful to God uh, for just this opportunity to do life together th- during this season of our lives. All right, well, let's turn our attention to God's Word this morning. We're going to continue in in our series in the book of Hebrews, a series titled um, A Devastating Majesty, and we are going to turn to uh, chapter 3 this morning, and we will read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I'll be reading from English Standard Version. Let's hear God's word. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So when you pray that God would write his eternal truth in our hearts this morning as we consider Jesus. Have you, um, have you ever been disappointed in life? Anybody live more than a day or so in this world to say, yep, I've been there. You know, like I... I hate it when you go to the vacation spot and it's nothing like the pictures of the brochure you saw, right? Or you you order something from the internet and you finally get it and it's nothing like the description that was promised. You thought it was going to be big, you know, six foot tall polar bear that you can put in front of your yard and it was actually six inches. The exam grade that you receive is not what you anticipated. Anybody been there, students? Yeah. For, for, for children, you know, you, you're, you're, you're always upset that your parents 
break promises that they made. Yeah, we'll take you to the ice cream store. No, I'm too busy. Or for parents, you know, all the shortfalls that your children bring, (laughs) short of your expectations. The relationships you pursued in the past or maybe you're pursuing now wasn't and still isn't leading you to a happily ever after that you thought it was going to be. And I guess, I would guess that this feeling of disappointment isn't all that unfamiliar to most of us, if not all of us. Has anybody never been disappointed in their life? Oh, that's great. Keep, keep, keep your hands up. That would be great. What, what, about, what about this? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever felt like you've been disappointed at this Christian faith, the Christian life that you've committed yourself? You know, the promised abundant life that we talk about all the time hasn't quite materialized in, in the way we live. And, and the spiritual blessings that we hear about, that we sing about, it's just so hard to put a hand on them. It just doesn't seem very tangible in your day-to-day life. And increasingly seems like living a Christian life, whether that's at work or at school or maybe even in your neighborhood, it's increasingly become a sure way to get marginalized, to be ridiculed, to be labeled as that old-fashioned, traditional, intolerant person. So maybe, maybe you have felt this tingling temptation to say, "Ah, you know what, you know, my life used to be a lot easier when I wasn't a Christian. Or or maybe, maybe it's not to that extent, but you may feel like, you know, I wish there was a way that I can live out our, my Christian life without making it so obvious to other people. If I can just fly under the radar using the Air Force term, or if I can just live my Christian faith life with some camouflage using the Army term. You know, this is exactly the situation in which the writer of Hebrews was writing. He's writing this very pastoral sermon to people who are are going through a series of disappointments in their life. You 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 may all know this, but, you know, the writer is writing to a group of Christians with a Jewish background in the first century. Um, And... And they're thinking about going back to the ways of Judaism in the past. They're thinking about ways to consider living out this newfound faith called Christian faith in such a way that they don't become the target of a political, economic, or social sanctions. Because their life as a Christian hadn't turned out all that 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 they thought it was going to be. In that sense, the book of Hebrews is really an appeal, appeal for endurance. Appeal for endurance 
in the face of disappointment. And how do we do that? How do we endure in the face of disappointment? The author of Hebrews is saying and urging the writers in the first century and certainly urging all of us here today in the 21st century by holding on to Jesus. To hold on to Jesus. You know, as we have heard in this series so far, Jesus has been portrayed as the perfect king, perfect prophet. And last Sunday, we talked about how he's the perfect priest. Priest who identifies with us in our suffering, who made the perfect atonement in his death, and who helps us perfectly in his intercession. Jesus is far superior, exceedingly better, abundantly greater than the angels. That's been the argument so far up to this point. And as we come to chapter 3 this morning, the author is going to build upon that argument by saying that Jesus is even better than that. Jesus is far superior, exceedingly greater than even Moses. Now, you may be thinking, what's the big deal with Moses? Well, he is big deal in Judaism. As we read in Numbers, 20, uh, Numbers 12 earlier today, to the to Jews, and even to this day, Moses is considered to be uh, one of the, uh, in many ways, Moses is considered as the greatest person who has ever lived in the history of Judaism. If you think about it, right? Moses, it was, it was through Moses that God delivered Israel from Egypt. It was through Moses that God constituted Israel as a nation. And of course, it was through Moses that God gave the law, the Ten Commandments. Of course, we all know the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch, is authored by Moses. In fact, the name Moses is mentioned more than 840 times across the Bible. That was a big deal. And because of all that, some Jewish tradition um, thought and still believed that Moses had a higher rank and higher privilege than angels themselves. So you can see how the author is building the argument that Jesus is not only better than the angels, but now he's even better than Moses himself. So it's in this context you can almost imagine how some folks, some Christian folks in the first century might have felt that temptation to go back, go back to the good old Moses days. We don't have to talk about Jesus all the time. We don't have to focus our lives on Jesus all the time. Maybe we can still kind of focus on Moses and be good with it. And to that, the author is responding, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 you don't. No, you don't. Don't do that. Jesus is far superior. Jesus is exceedingly better. 
And to make the case in today's text, he gives really three reasons that are kind of building up on each, upon each other. So let's take a look at those. The first reason that the author gives is this. In verse 2, Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. If you look back at verse 2 here today, it says, Who, referring back to Jesus, was faithful to him, God the Father, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, the author here is acknowledging that, sure, yeah, Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful. Remember, God said, my servant Moses is faithful in all my house, so much so that I speak with Moses face to face. No other prophet has God done such a thing. But that doesn't mean that just because Moses is on a high regard doesn't mean that he's better than Jesus. In fact, Jesus was no less faithful, so he's beginning to build the argument here. No less faithful as the apostle and high priest. That's how Jesus is described in verse 1. Now, it may be unfamiliar for, for many of us to hear Jesus and apostle put together as a description, but don't be alarmed. Apostle simply means the sent out one, the, the sent one, the one who's been sent by someone else, sort of like an ambassador, right? So just as Moses was sent by God to speak, carry on his message in front of Pharaoh, Jesus was sent by the Father. In fact, when you look through the gospel, oftentimes Jesus will say, I am sent by the Father. My will is to do the, do the one who sent me. And in, in fact, in John 17, he prays the high, in a high priestly prayer, I want you to be with me and I in you, and I want my disciples to be in us. Why? So that the world may see that you sent me to the world. So Jesus is certainly the one who's been sent by the Father. And that's all that means, that Jesus is the apostle. And of course, Jesus sends the 12 as the sent out ones, and we call them 12 apostles. And just as Moses mediated between God and the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is that high faith, a faithful high priest, as we heard about last Sunday. He's the one mediator between God and men. And he's the one who made the propitiation, the satisfactory offering before God for the sins of the people. Jesus is faithful as Moses was faithful. Listen, you know, we live in a world that's... Um, that is so unfaithful in so many ways. In fact, you know, we often get into relationship um, kind of wishing for some faithfulness, but oftentimes we are left with disappointment when people become unfaithful. And that's a work relationship, personal relationship, marital relationships even. What an opportunity. What an opportunity 
to lift up Jesus, who's portrayed here as the faithful one, to a world that is desperately looking for some faithfulness. Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. So now with this first line of argument, the author sort of grabbed the attention of the hearers. They thought Moses was great. Well, Jesus is just as great, just as faithful. But now in the second argument, he's going to turn up the heat here. And he goes on further to say, Jesus is actually worthy of more glory than Moses. In verse 3, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Of course, he's saying that Jesus is God. So when we read this statement, the underlying assumption here is this. Christ, it's Jesus Christ who built the house or the household of God, God's people, the church. And Moses was only part of the house. Yeah, Moses was a leader in God's household. Yeah, Moses was a pretty significant dude in the story of redemption. But he was still, nonetheless, only a part of this household of God. But Jesus, he's the builder of the house that Moses led. Jesus is the builder of all things. Jesus is the builder of the church from the very beginning, and he will continue to be the builder to the consummation of the church because he's the creator of all things, of the entire universe. And that includes Moses, by the way. I love architecture. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably be an architect somewhere. Um, but God's calling, I guess, is a greater calling. Not guess. I, it is. It is. Um, you know, one of my most favorite structures that I, that I had the opportunity to visit uh, is in Barcelona, Spain, called the Sagrada Familia. Uh, on the outset, it may be an ugly structure to many people, many untrained eyes. However, it is one of the most gorgeous church buildings that's currently still being built. Uh, the construction began in 1882, and it's set to complete uh, in 2026, uh, almost 144 years later. The more I think about it, though, as beautiful as that structure is, right, the honor and the glory doesn't go to that building. The honor and glory goes to the designer and the architect of that building, whose name is Antoni Gaudi. Right? We can admire the building. We can go, wow, at, this, at the beauty of the structure. But the honor and the glory always goes, go to the builder. And that's really the argument that the writer is making here. We can admire Moses. We can admire a lot of the Old Testament figures who've done wonderful things in the unfolding of the history of redemption. But the ultimate honor and glory goes 
ultimate honor and glory go to Jesus, the builder of all things. So Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful. Got your attention. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Now the author is sort of shifting the spotlight away from Moses onto Jesus himself. And now he brings the final and the greatest argument that Jesus' faithful sonship is far superior than Moses' faithful servanthood. Sonship is superior to the servanthood. Look again at verse 5. Moses was faithful, he was, in all God's house as a servant. Beginning of 6, verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So both Moses and Jesus are faithful, we got that, but there is a positional difference here. One is faithful as a servant, and the other as a son. Now, the word servant here is not a servant that's often translated as a slave. Doulos is the Greek word. In fact, the Greek word here that's described as a servant is a word called therapon, which means it's, it's a position of nobility, of honor, under authority. So again, sort of like a political appointee ambassador, right, who serves a higher cause with honor. But even then, the author is making the argument, the title servant, title servant, yeah, you can hold, a, hold the honor and distinction, but it's not, and it will never be same as a son. Because only son can be the heir. Faithfulness on the part of a servant is required or you get fired. But faithfulness on the part of son is an expression of love. It's love toward the father who sent him and it's love toward the people over whom he is responsible So the author is saying, do you see this? Do you get that? As great as Moses was, Jesus is far superior. Jesus is exceedingly better. In fact, because in fact, everything that Moses did in verse 5 tell us, tells us was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, namely Jesus. All that Moses did was to, was to point us to something that will come later. The son who will be faithful over God's house. And his name is Jesus. Yes, Moses was a man. He was a servant in God's household. But Jesus is the God-man. Not a servant, but the son. Not in the house, but over the house. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin, but Christ was judged for the sins, not of his own, but sins of the people. 
as he offered himself as a better sacrifice. And we'll talk about that later. Moses led the people, people of Israel up to the promised land, but he quite didn't get them to the promised land. But Christ, the second Moses, led his people out of the bondage of sin, and he takes them all the way into a better land, a better country, with better promises, with better life, better hope. And that's the remainder of the story of the book of Hebrews, that everything that we're going to talk about in context of Jesus Christ is better, is far superior. Don't miss what Jesus offers because who Jesus is. Don't go back to something that's lesser than Jesus. Even if that's Moses, right? In today's term, the author is saying, don't miss Jesus by clutching onto something that's less than Jesus. Even if that thing may be a good thing, attractive thing. It could be hard work. It could be happy marriage or well-behaved children. It could be good grades in school. It could be a stable job that provides for your family. It could be a successful career that somehow you can bring honor and glory to God. But don't settle for those things at the expense of the best thing. Pursue Jesus Christ. Because he is better. He is far superior than anything that you can substitute for Moses in your life. As we close, I'd just like to offer a couple of application points here today. Um, and the first, first application is this. As the author exhorts his readers in verse 1, I want to encourage all of you to consider Jesus. Now, the command to consider means to think, not just feel, but to think. Think carefully. Filter all your thoughts, thereby all your actions, through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding who he is and what he has done for you, and also what he is doing now on your behalf. Consider Jesus. And that's exactly what we're doing here this morning, is it not? When we gather to worship, when we sing the beautiful lyrics of the songs that we sing, when we, when we pray together, when you hear God's word preached, we're, we're considering not ourselves, right? but we're considering Jesus. And that's why later on, the author is going to make the case in, in chapter 10, verse 25. Let's not give up meeting together. Because part of our considering Jesus happens in the context of a community. In fact, at the end, he'll say, we're all his household. Paul talks about we're all the body of Christ. 
we are connected to each other. When God saves you, he doesn't just save you from your sin and death, but he saves you into a community, a body. It's when we are in context of the community, we can consider Christ. You know, I'm not, I'm not um, going to deny that in this life, in, in, in the reality that we live in, there are troubles, there are hardships um, that can break even the strongest and the toughest. I've seen that. Even the best things of this world will eventually disappoint us and will break us. So the author is exhorting all of us this morning, and I, I'm doing the same thing with, with you all. Don't rest upon these things that the world offers. Don't count on them. Don't depend on them. Instead, we need to always remind ourselves to consider Christ, consider Jesus above all. We need to look to him through scriptures, through, through the body of Christ. We need to value him above all things. And yes, that means you value Christ more than your iPhone 15. And we run after him. And we draw closer to him. We, don't get, we try not to get distracted as the world, the, the goal of the world is to distract us from focusing on Christ, is it not? It's to take our minds off of Christ even if that means through texting and, and all the notifications that come through your smart devices when you're in worship. That's not to make you feel bad. But I'm just saying that's how the world works. And the author says, consider Jesus. And the last thing I'll say is this, that you know, as in verse 6, as we, as we read here, we have to hold fast. Hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our confidence is not in ourselves. We know that. Of the Reformed people, we are sure of that. Our hope is not in some optimistic odds at changing circumstances in our lives. We know that. Because our confidence and our hope are in Christ and Christ alone. But at the same time, the beauty of the Reformed theology is that when you're in union with Christ... When we're in Christ, when we are call our, calling ourselves Christians, we're also invited to be an active participants in the life of faith. We're not simply to take our back seat and, all right, Jesus, you got it. I'm thinking of some country song here, but I'll not go there. You are invited to be an active participant in God's grand story of redemption that hasn't culminated in the glorification of his church. So he's calling all of us to hold on. Hold on. Satan is going to come with his opposing forces to distract us. Satan is going to come to shake your confidence whether it's through the scientific argument or some intellectual uh, propositions or some social pressure, he's going to come and shake us. But the writer says, hold on. Hold on to Jesus. Especially when we're tempted to settle for just Christian-only or Sunday-only Christianity. 
Right? That's a safe way to kind of play this Christian thing. Or when, you're, when we're being tempted to sort of camouflage our faith so we can enjoy all the benefits of this world, the writer is saying, hold on. Hold on to Christ. And remember that the faith that saved you is also the faith that perseveres till the end. Christ is not going to abandon us. In fact, he calls in verse 1, we are holy brothers and sisters. We are those who have been set apart by God, for God, through Christ. And we share heavenly calling. Not calling something that we can put on ourselves on on the basis of the merits of this world. But it's a heavenly calling. Because ultimately we are all his family. So don't be ashamed of Jesus. As we read last week in chapter 2, verse 11, isn't it incredible that it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters? Of all people, I think Jesus would be ashamed. It's like, oh, I'm not related to that guy. He's so messed up. But he says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and sisters. That's the confidence that we have. So I encourage all of you to be convinced that Jesus is worth our devotion. He is worth your intellectual energy to study, to know, to understand. He is worth every ounce of your emotional investment through your prayer and through your singing. He's worth it all. So no matter what is waiting to entice you this coming week, to distract you, to discourage you, to try to shake the foundation of your faith, I pray that you can hold on to Christ because he holds on to you. And his grip will never let you go. And it's in that confidence we can clutch onto him cling on to him, hold on to him, and boldly and confidently claim that no matter what anybody else may say, Jesus is far superior. He is exceedingly better. He is abundantly greater. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this message. Perhaps a simple message. And we all maybe get that intellectually that Jesus is better. But thank you for giving us this opportunity to consider him once more. And to really recommit ourselves in how we are to live for Christ, for his sake, as his people. God, I just pray that you will remind us that no matter what world may dangle in front of our eyes, it may even have glitters. Help us to not be shaken from belief and faith that Jesus is far superior, exceedingly better than anything else that we can substitute. So may you walk with us so that we may walk this life in Christ for your glory, in confidence, in boldness, because we belong to you. 
pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.